0: Hello, welcome to Louder Than Words, where we talk about ideas that improve lives. I'm Jules Pretty from the University of Essex, and it's a great pleasure to welcome to the show today Eric Jacobi and Jordan LaZelle from the Essex Business School at the University of Essex. Welcome, Thank you. guys. Thank you for having us. Um, our topics today are going to focus on Circular economies and neuromarketing, the the roles of business, um, brand activism, consumer resistance, sustainability, and how we actually radically change the way that economies work. And there's a particular interest in, in, in how businesses are helping that transformation at the moment. So Eric and Jordan, warm welcome to you both for the show. Uh, let's begin with your own work and interests and then come to the kind of joint ideas that link your work. Um, So, Eric, why don't you start with a little summary of what your work is about?
1: Yeah, sure. Well, thank you again for having us. Um, So I'm a lecturer in marketing at the business school and very broadly um, I look at sustainability and I do that with a bunch of colleagues from a bunch of different perspectives because I think a holistic view is typically what what, uh, gets you the best results. But I specifically am interested in consumers' views on sustainability, information and technologies and so I'm also the director of the university's neuromarketing lab and the lead of the consumer neuroscience group where basically we put people in front of computers, uh, show them stuff like ads or product packaging and then we measure how they react to that by measuring their heart rates and how much they sweat and brain activity and that kind of stuff
0: mm, okay great well we'll come back to the whole thing of neuromarketing right at the kind of cutting edge of a lot of thinking about um, the decisions that we make in the in the modern world uh, Jordan what about your your focus of your work
2: focus again for brightness here so Uh, As Eric is, I'm a lecturer in marketing in Essex Business School. Uh, I'm very interested in sustainable consumption. It's the idea that we need to consume products and resources more sustainably, um, specifically very much in the world of food waste. So why we're wasting so much food, why consumers are wasting food, why businesses are throwing away millions of tons of food um, every year as well. Um, My research is very kind of qualitative, very much around why consumers behave in certain ways, why supply chains are... Uh, Orientated in certain ways, and um, how they can be made more circular in the long term. Mm,
0: okay, great. So let's come to this concept of circular economies. Then, if we could start off with that, um, uh, the structure of the of the economy that we have now, or the economies that we have now, uh, push us and focus us as consumers and as as uh, uh, you know business leaders and leaders of uh, voluntary organisations and so forth to think and, and consume in particular ways and. We know with the climate crisis upon us that we're going to need to change all of that um, probably more quickly than people mm. think. So where does circular economies fit in in this kind of thinking about the transformations that, that we hope lie ahead of us?
1: Eric, do you sure. want to? Yeah, I can, I can make a start. So I think... Um, you know, one thing that we see all the time that's very challenging in making change happen, especially on such a big scale, is simply the amount of people that need to be involved, right? So and we've talked about consumers already as being a key part in this. Uh, but of course, there are businesses and often it's not just one business, but each business relies on many other businesses. Um, there are lots of conversations in relation to, you know, net zero and, and uh, you know, you have your scope one, your scope two, your scope three. So it's not just about what you do as a business, but also what your suppliers do and what's happening in your your broader supply and distribution chain. And then, of course, all of that happens within uh, a legislative and political framework. And so one thing that's really challenging to get one business on board let's say or to get one person on board they say oh but what about all the others they surely they need to do their thing before it makes sense for me to do my thing it's kind of you have to have everyone on board before you can get one person on board it's this sort of chicken and egg problem and i think where circular economies comes in and I, I typically prefer to use the plural because that means it's not just this bizarre you know macro grand thing that maybe one day we'll achieve but rather it's something that can be done at just local community grassroots levels where you can just get a smaller group of people involved to just do a tiny, tiny circuit of something much bigger. But once you've achieved that, then you can, you know, you can do a case study on that. And I think that's where we as academics come in in particular to study that, see how it works, why it works, how well it works, what the benefits are, to then bring that to a broader public and consumers and other businesses and policymakers to make something much, much bigger happen. And I think that's where circular economies to me is a very interesting concept within, you know, because we have all these other concepts like net zero, for example. But circular economies just feels like something much more tangible that can actually be achieved.
0: Mm. So some mm. of the language is around bio-circular economies, you know, as they kind of echoing the biomimicry, the, the processes of nature, which are, by definition, circular and integrative. Um, and so working on food systems, presumably that's kind of, that fits with that sort of thinking, doesn't it, George? Yeah, so yeah. the
2: idea that there is a bioeconomy and then we can recycle nutrients within uh, systems or supply chains, et cetera. Um, yeah, so the, the food system should be made more circular in the long term. At the moment, it's quite wasteful. We waste lots of food, as I mentioned um, at the start. But the idea that there's a ways of recirculating some of the material within food in different ways, the food waste hierarchy, another concept, Eric, um, the idea that we should be preventing food from being wasted in the forefront. If we can't do that, we go down to um, reducing food from being wasted, um, reducing the material itself, down from that reusing food in some kind of way. So maybe you can make um, bioplastics, for example, out of food waste, et cetera. And finally, recovering um, gases, materials from uh, food waste. So anaerobic digestion plants, for example, make gases. They make um, like a sort of material you can put on crops, et cetera, for... Um, fertilizer and things like that so there's the good example of one kind of uh, sector one material or nutrients that can be recycled in some kind of circular way um in a more sustainable system overall um yeah and, and just to say that again i agree with eric that it can be very challenging to make these systems happen i think what you see is that this is very kind of conceptual there's there's the the butterfly diagram for example from the ellen mccarthy Um, foundation that kind of captures all these flows of nutrients and components and products from cradle to cradle but the actual reality of making that happen can be very, very challenging for businesses um, and also how consumers are involved in that as well. Um, As you said um, as Eric said, it's very much our kind of job as academics I suppose is to kind of facilitate some of this research going on to sort of not only sit there and theorise what the systems look like but actually how, how do you make them happen, how do you kind of create the conditions for change for businesses to kind of um, create these environments where they, we are recycling um, materials, et cetera.
0: Yeah, I'm very interested in this kind of process of, of transformation, the transition from one system to another one. And it's something that, that I hear a lot when I talk to groups of people. Um, not all people think this, but and, uh, a what whataboutery kind of question it often is, well, why should I do something when everyone else isn't doing something? And of course, we get nowhere. When if everybody thinks that. So I mean, to to put then comes to leadership, you know, who who is willing to then take the risks, whose hands need to be held to start to innovate and to get some kind of benefit from being a leader in doing something different. So how are businesses stepping into that space? Um, You know, what's happening when when some are realising, oh, this is something I don't actually need to do, but I should do.
1: In a kind of normative sense. Yeah, I mean, actually, I I don't hear that very often. I typically hear businesses very much wanting to to achieve net zero, to be mm-hmm. part of a circular economy, to be sustainable, and for many different reasons. I think businesses, of course, there are exceptions, and those exceptions are problematic. But I think on the whole, businesses are very, very much interested in being at the forefront of this. They see this as a uh, means to be competitive. They see it as means to save money by just making the whole production, you know, leaner and cleaner and, and less uh, less costly. Um, and and so I think there is a great drive on behalf of businesses to make this happen. Again, I, where I see the bigger challenge is in, you know, that is very difficult for these different businesses to coordinate. Um, and then again, policymakers can or cannot be useful in facilitating that coordination but i think that's where again we as academics can play an important role uh, also through kind of you know the funding that we can get from from the uk and ukri esrc in just creating projects where again we can kind of you know, you bring some money and some frameworks and uh, can, you know, just coordinate among each other and with all the connections that we have. And, uh, you know, hopefully, again, create kind of smaller networks and smaller circuits, study them and then have those case studies to present to others to show that it's working. Yeah. but And, I think, and
0: are you, let me push you on that a bit. I, are, you, are you interested in more than just studying, but in also kind of enabling change so that... So that inte- I, I assume the answer is yes, because yes. you know, because <laughs> so, you've implied that. But so we're not just engaged in analyzing stuff and how it works or setting up kind of concepts, as as you were saying with with the MacArthur Foundation, Jordan. Um, that it's it's actually about being kind of active in helping to create the platforms where people can kind of come together and perform together. If we can kind of use that sort of language, it's about pushing it to that that next
2: stage. Yeah, I, I can the, give a really good example. Yeah. There's a project I was involved in where we looked at the bioplastic industry. So the idea that there is producers making bioplastic materials, there is supermarkets uh, and food manufacturers using these materials as packaging. Then you've got a waste management sector that has to somehow do something with these and they're meant to be compostable, recyclable. Um, and this was a project where we had a social innovation lab um, method. So we had three workshops with the brought across, um actors across the supply chain where well, the first one we looked at what the problems, the second one, what the solutions, and the third one was how do we create the conditions to change, what's the most feasible solution going forward. And this was kind of meant to be, on paper, a very circular economy because you've got the idea that we're going to reuse uh, materials in some kind of ways, we're going to have a very linear system of using single plastics, etc. Um, but there was loads of challenges with this. So the people that made the bioplastic materials, there's a host of different certifications of what is, re- what is uh, compostable, what by bi- what biodegrades, what doesn't biodegrade under what conditions, as well. The retailers obviously there's an increased cost with using these materials over the kind of traditional plastics. And finally, the waste management sector were very very apprehensive in putting these things within their anaerobic digestion plants, for example. So there was cases where they might include some of the bioplastic materials, but actually they kind of create problems where the um, material wasn't breaking down and it wasn't making the end product in a certain way. So that project wa- was it was called a symbio. The idea of bringing all these actors together in a room to talk to each other to say you know I want they had a shared vision of moving forward, but there were so many kind of barriers yeah. um, et etc so I think that's a good example of I suppose our role as academics almost like kind of um, middlemen of bringing these people together to say you know there's a there's an end goal here of being more sustainable as a sector, but you need to work together and there need to be some kind of investment in the long term rather than being kind of very thinking in the short term very kind of reactive economic pressures that there is a long-term goal of making this work as a as a system i suppose mm. um, going forward
0: mm. um so in that uh, in the in the way that you set it out there sounds like sounds like there are lots of difficulties yes and, and i suppose the point <laughs> is i mean the, the answer is of course there are because that's why people are not shifting immediately to alternatives um uh difficulties like like we don't pay the full cost of disposal. We don't pay the externalities um, that that are imposed elsewhere, of which climate crisis, climate change is, you know, the biggest form of externality. Um, uh, we don't pay that until a, at a later point. So, um, getting individual businesses to be thinking about um, what they can do, and um, practically, strikes me as a kind of the starting point. But you were saying, Eric, that. You're, you're finding that there's a there's a positive desire to do something, bringing all the people in the room. Jordan, there's a positive desire to do something, still may be difficult, but at least you're getting people to be thinking about the kinds of transitions that are needed.
1: Yeah, the, the way I I think about this is is again there are there are lots and lots of really good companies uh, who understand sustainability as um a a strategy that is not only good for the planet and society but also just good for them that that it is good business that there are many ways of making it good business of course then there are, there are also companies that are that don't care about the environment that that only care about their profit margin and um the the problem is and we've seen this in other studies the more companies start to engage in kind of greenwashing and woke washing the more the public becomes kind of jaded, right? Yeah. The more the public thinks, whenever they hear a claim about sustainability, they go, "Oh, you know, either either it's uh, it's BS or um, it is, uh, you know, that company, you know, maybe it's true, but they're just saying it because they they want to make money, right?" So there's a there's a danger that on the whole, the public is be- is going to become more resistant yeah. to those kinds of claims because they just be jaded. They'd always think, "Ah, it's not true. It's greenwashing. It's woke washing." And I think again, part of our job as academics is to help companies fight against that, to make sure that when companies do things, they do them right and and also in ways that consumers see that they are doing that and that the consumers believe it, and that therefore those companies can get a critical mass of of you know momentum to to really make change happen. Um, but I think that's where, again, you sort of have a dividing line between companies that clearly don't care. But then the other companies that see the opportunity in that and see, OK, but if we really care and we just do it right and we make it happen, we get the support from the public and from policy, then we'll be in a much, much stronger position. Yeah.
0: Uh, Paul Polman and Andrew Winston wrote a book recently called Net Positive. Polman was the, the, the boss of Unilever, so a big food company, one of the largest in the world uh, recently. Um, and in that they said businesses cannot thrive in societies that fail. So that's a kind of interesting starting point, saying there's a responsibility, as you were saying. Uh, Profit comes not from creating problems, but from solving them. So again, a kind of sense of responsibility, which I thought was quite interesting. Um, And then most importantly, I think, um, they said the businesses uh, will prosper if they serve the world. Um, They give more than they take. And I think this is this idea of net positive, which I think is quite an interesting one, because if we include in that equation the hidden costs. I mean, water companies look better on their better bottom line because they don't invest in solving water pollution problems. Was it 800 deliberate sewage releases a day in the UK last year? A day. Mm. And so that externality is picked up by someone else and not on their bottom line. Well, I think they fail the test of Pullman and Winston. Mm. They're not net positive. But that kind of idea, that underlying value... Perhaps if people speak to those values, I'm wondering whether that kind of shines through more and we'll come to the neuromarketing bit in a moment. Shines through more than the greenwashing kind of approach that people kind of go, Oh yes, I recognise the 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 you know, there's a real kind of moral position that's being taken there. I believe that, rather than overhear these people just saying they're doing the right thing and actually there's no moral content. Mm. I just wonder whether 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 that kind of strikes a chord in, in, in some sort of way, that people doing the right thing and saying the right thing. And that uh, provides a form of leadership, a form of words and the kind of the moral content of what they're doing.
1: Yeah, I think when it comes to... So one one definition of brand activism is that it is, you know, basically to take a stance uh, and to do so for not financial reasons. So the idea is is you, you don't just do it because you think it's good for business. And ideally, it should be. Um, but the idea is also you, you also want to bring about change. Right? you want to motivate people to do something differently. And I think that's where kind of this idea of greenwashing or you know to what extent you really believe it? do you just say it for the money? Again, there might be elements there where you know consumers might kind of buy into it, but not to the point where they'll be motivated to actually change how they behave, how they consume, or you know just how they talk to others about uh, things like the environment. And I think that's where the sort of this idea of true brand activism comes in. It, it is, and again, to, to speak to the book, it is about giving to society and, and building a better society. So it's not just about we as a company do something good, but it's also we as a company motivate others to join in in that cause.
2: Mm-hmm. Can I play the good here? Yeah, sure, please do. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I'm quite interested in the critiques of the circular economy. And um, I've written a, a short paper about it, but there are some examples where I think that brands perhaps use a circular economy to perhaps um, I suppose increase the kind of rate of consumption or keep it the same when really looking towards net zero we should be drawing back our consumption. There's a well known mobile phone company and other electronic companies do this as well that are promoting um, the recycling of their products so if a consumer gives a product back to the, the company they can very kind of quickly and have a, lots of tech around taking the, the uh, components apart and recycle them and on the surface this is a a kind of fantastic idea because the consumer can gets the idea that um, you know it's it's okay to to buy a new product every year. Um, you know, mobile phone companies release a, a new product every year. The consumer kind of uh, gets rid of their guilt around this about kind of consuming and, and buying lots of goods. Um, but actually, when you step back, you kind of really question whether those goods should be recycled that often. Whether consumers should be perhaps buying new items every year as the, as a the tech updates. And it might be a kind of a, an example where. Um, this is almost like using the circular economy to facilitate um, kind of quickening consumption or like further consumption of um, goods, electronic goods in particular. In that example,
0: yeah, I mean there's there's, there's a there's a, a kind of a strong feeling that dealing with the overall consumption patterns is is almost kind of more difficult is another kind of set of challenges to getting across the ideas of net zero. I mean that that's about reducing fossil fuels and emissions and creating kind of greener approaches and so forth as, as, as well we know. Uh, but if we carry on consuming at the rate that we do in rich countries and people in poor countries see that as something aspirational, the numbers don't add up. do They yeah. I mean, they, really, they really don't.
2: Yeah, so. I mean, and this is also one of the big challenges of the circular economy because whilst the kind of system exists on paper, how it's being implemented, again, electronics being a good example, a lot of the kind of recycling and, and drawing back some of the materials actually happens in developing countries. There's a you know, huge um, electronics recycling um, industry in like Western Africa, for example, and the conditions under which some of these people work um, and the, the payment is actually they receive is tiny. So on paper, you can see the circular system happening, but a lot of the kind of social um, challenges and issues around that, um, around kind of work and conditions, aren't always being addressed. Yeah,
0: um, uh, which is why we talk about a just transition, as well as just, as it were, a transition that has got to be fair, as well as 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 well as a thing to happen. Um, very good. So let's come to kind of neuromarketing and see how that kind of fits into that. Eric, tell us a bit about the neuromarketing lab, and you mentioned that at the top of the show. Um, ideas about about understanding uh, uh, consumer responses to brands, to signals, to things, and how that fits into, how what you're learning fits into these ideas of of uh, transformation and transition that we've hinted at, and noting, as you were saying, Jordan, the, the kind of fundamental contradictions that under underline a lot of this. And my feeling is that we're not going to solve all of those in one go. We have to get on the path and start asking difficult questions, which then lead to second and third order solutions later on but um, what about neuromarketing
1: yes yeah, so so i mean if i if i create a bit of a transition from what jordan said because he made a very good point which is that you know consumer information or oh, it's so complicated it's so complex it actually is very difficult to make a properly informed decision. So, I mean, you can go back to when, when single-use plastics were invented. Uh, consumers, they weren't so well educated about them, so they just littered them everywhere. They didn't understand that that was a really bad thing because they were new. Actually, the the people who have really then against littering was uh, predominantly the plastics industry because they were very concerned that if people complain complain about plastic litter everywhere, the government is going to come in and ban single-use plastic. So actually, it's the industry that was in favor of, you know, stopping littering. Um, there are lots of other examples just off the complexity. You have, um, um, you know, carbon offsetting and tree planting and, and how... There are lots of companies that claim to do that, but don't. But it's also so complex it's so complex and so complicated. I think even for any individual business to really understand whether if they're signed up to a carbon offsetting program, whether that carbon is really being offset, probably impossible. You know. Well, I'm, I'm um, a bit
0: skeptical, actually, of most offsetting. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I think there is a role for it in creating within the agricultural system, um, uh, you know, better quality soils that hold more carbon. I think that's a real, that has a real benefit in, in more carbon above ground in trees. That's a real benefit. Um, but I can only do a tiny bit of the job of mm-hmm. reducing net emissions. Um, and the Race to Zero, the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change project called Race to Zero, which has now got 8,000 businesses across the world, mm. and investors and cities and regions signed up to it, says that 80% of the job has to come from emissions reductions. So you can do a bit with with offsets and a little mm. bit with carbon trading. I think it's kind of easier to say, you know, what they can only really do a little bit of icing on the cake. You've still got yeah, to yeah. create the cake. And that's where the big job is, and perhaps that's where you see some of the, um, the the kind of greenwashing when people say, oh, you know, we've got a we've got a net zero flight from A to B, and you say, really, you know, not yet, you haven't. Um, so, yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, there are
1: also cases of you know lo- buying local produce, not realizing that that local produce spent all night being flown to another country to be kind of, I don't know, clean, processed, and packaged, and then being flown back. Uh, there's also um, you know, a famous company that makes plastic products that, for a very long time, tried to make these plastic products out of recycled plastic bottles. But then they gave up because they realized that as technology currently stands, um, r- making that particular product that they make out of recycled plastic bottles actually takes more energy yeah. than just making it out of traditional oil-based plastics. But of course, now you have lots of companies uh, selling stuff made out of, you know, recycled bottles. But how would you know as a consumer whether that was actually good for the environment or just used up more energy than if they had used traditional? So yeah. anyway, it's it's a, it's a hugely complicated and complex minefield for consumers to navigate. And I think this is where... Um, you know, just consumer research and things like neuromarketing comes in quite handy to see how people respond to certain kinds of information and, and how they're being presented. Give um, us a
0: couple of examples of that then. So in in the neuromarketing lab, which you mm. have here, working with, with um, uh, expertise across a number of different disciplines, mm. as you mentioned earlier, um, tell us a bit about how that actually works in terms of increasing our understanding. Because in these kind of complex areas, the thing... The thing that sort of worries me is that, that if people think things are so complex and they're being told that, then they might not want to do anything at all. They might just think, I can't do anything. And actually, what we want people to do is to do yeah. something and then tomorrow do something else. And then by you know, a year or five years, we will have got a long way. Um, it's how we get people to take the steps forward. So how, how is the neuromarketing helping us understand that?
1: So when it comes to consumer research, um, there are a few challenges. One of them is that consumers don't always say what they think. And that's not, not to say that they sometimes lie. I mean, sometimes they might. But, but it's also sometimes we lie to ourselves. Mm. Sometimes we're just not quite aware of what we actually think or what we do. And, and you that know, a piece of very... cake
0: is really only 50 calories. Yeah, yeah exactly. Kind of thing, I mean... Yeah.
1: Yeah. A very, very, you know, traditional example is, again, when we talk about recycling, So what's called the attitude behavior gap. If you ask people about, you know, hey, how much do you recycle? They'll give you a number. If you measure how much they actually recycle, almost always people say they recycle more than they actually do. And again, I don't think it, that's people actively lying or trying to deceive. It's just in that moment we, we say what, what we want to do more so than what we actually do. But so, yeah, very often it's, it's you know, just asking consumers what they think isn't actually a very good way of gauging what they really think or feel and, and how that impacts their behavior. So what we do in, in neuromarketing, kind of very briefly talked about at the beginning, but just sort of as a, as a bit of a clearer explanation, what it really is, is in a nutshell, um, when we show consumers or, you know, research participants um, stimuli, as we call them, so that can be an ad, a YouTube video, a picture, it can be a product... Um, As they're looking at that, we measure a couple of things. So for one thing, we uh, use eye tracking so we can see exactly what it is they're looking at um, as the sort of experiment progresses. We also then measure their pupil dilation. Because typically uh, if you get excited and aroused, your pupils will start to get bigger. So we can measure that. Uh, We also measure heart rate. Galvanic skin resistance, which is basically how sweaty you're getting. Again, typically, if you get excited or aroused, you get a bit more sweaty. Um, And then also we have EEG equipment, so we can uh, measure electric brain activity. And then we can kind of combine all of this into a reading of, you know, what do people actually pay attention to? What actually gets people engaged? We also use, use facial emotion recognition to see, again, what is the emotional engagement that people have? And so we can get a clearer sense of, just how impactful is a bit of information? How likely is someone to actually notice it, remember it, pay attention to it? And again, you get into this of hierarchies of information and how you should best present them just to make sure that consumers get the information that is actually useful to them at that particular moment in time. And typically, so we take a very holistic approach. So we would on top of that, typically also interview people, do focus groups, do uh, online surveys. So we kind of just have, again, a more holistic approach just to make sure we get an accurate picture. But there, one aspect that comes up a lot uh, is especially in this world of sustainability, is you know how we evaluate information very much depends on the context in which that information is presented. So we had a case recently. Um, we work with a company that um, creates a kind of consumer information platform. So it's basically on your phone. Yeah, you can scan QR codes, pops up a website, and on there you've got tons of information about products, including how to what extent they're made out of recycled materials and just what what the ingredients are, etc. And so that platform is presented in a very kind of formal way, right? And there's lots of, it's called a boring, dry information, numbers, figures. But that's that's what it is. It's what it does. It's, it just gives you that information. Um, there was one case where a company under the sort of sustainability heading had then written a very nice kind of paragraph that was just a more like a mission statement. Like, hey, we really care about the environment. A bit we of a story. A sense, it's a bit of a story. Yeah. And it was very nice, very well written. But a lot of consumers, a lot of our participants, when they saw that, just because of the context, because it didn't fit that formal, you know, style of presentation, they tended to assume that that must be greenwashing. That 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 can't. It, it just didn't fit the context of, you know. And, and it, it, that company isn't actually, it's one of the good ones, you know, they're fighting the good fight. Yeah. So it's also about just informing companies, you know, just again about, and we spoke about that earlier, how we not just do research, so academic research, right? So part of that is better understanding consumer behavior and how we process information. But then part of it is also just making the world a better place and helping businesses. By now, you know, for that company providing guidelines for how information should be presented so that consumers, you know, interpret it accurately.
0: Mm very interesting.
1: Yeah. I was going to say as well it's a good example
2: where if one company does something very well, they present this information in a very kind of clear and distinct way and consumers understand it, then others need to follow suit because otherwise you get a situation as Eric said where consumers come to question uh, an organization that isn't presenting that information well and that you know devalues their brand etc and they don't kind of appear as a as a relevant or a legitimate actor in in the market. Mm.
0: And how are you seeing that sort of thing play out when it comes to food systems? Again, if we go back to your kind of expertise on that side, presenting of, because it's 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 the food we consume and the choices we make. But as you were saying also, then at the end of the cycle, it's it's, it's the waste that comes from that. There's a whole bunch of decisions being made, aren't there? Um, uh, that the could be going one way or the other way. And mm-hmm. is there a danger of, Consumers being presented with just too much information. I know it's a deliberate technique sometimes to confuse us, um, confusion marketing and all of that kind of thing, um, so that we actually just revert to the signals that we're being told. Yeah, I'm getting into the into the weeds here a bit, perhaps, but uh, you can see where you know e- clarity of signal and also complexity of the of the context.
2: Yeah, I, I can comment on so my PhD was about consumer food-based behaviour. Um, and what I understand, what, what I wanted to understand, as Eric mentioned, was the actual behaviour gap. So the idea that consumers are very aware they should not be wasting food. It, food waste is a huge issue. It's very much prophesied in the last sort of, 10, 20 years. It's a big issue and consumers shouldn't be wasting it. I did a study where I asked consumers to take pictures of the food that they eat and, and prepare and throw away for a week. Um, and then that was an initial interview. And after I came back to them, I said, OK, what did you do that week? What did you prepare and buy? And it's... Interesting to see that consumers didn't really remember what they ate a week ago. I was going to ask you today, do you remember the the meal you had a week ago, for example? Um, and it's very hard for them to say whether they wasted food or not. And one of the reasons for this was the fact that they are all very busy. We might have to have at the front, for, front of our mind the fact that wasting food is a bad thing, but given the kind of routines and the schedules we have, looking after our children and going to work, etc., we're not, got at the front of our mind all this time, the idea that we should not be wasting food. And that was what I saw in my study. When people got busy, especially people that commuted long distances, if you're coming back from work and you go into the supermarket and you have no idea what's actually in the house, for example, you might buy extra food and that gets wasted. Um, and also the idea that um, there's really lack of research on disruption as well. So we very much treat consumers' lives as being quite constant in a lot of academic studies. But what I found is that there's always disruptors. There's people that get ill... There's you know different routines that change for whatever reason things happen and that then changes how we kind of shop and eat and we end up wasting more food for example so they're very much factors that I think need to be considered uh, much more greatly when we look at
1: why consumers uh, waste food. Yeah, I mean if I come in also on the just sort of information and potential information overload. Um, One conversation and debate I'm having a lot with people in academia and industry is about labels and certificates. Um, And are they a good thing, are they a bad thing? Well, obviously, one side of the argument is, well, they they are a good thing because they are just one logo, one symbol, one bit of text, or one word that clearly communicates goodness. But the counter-argument to that is, is typically, but a lot of them, are bogus and they're basically just you pay for it and they take your money and they just give you the label whether you've done good or not um, and also there's a big barrier for you know uh, startups and, and, and SMEs who maybe don't have the finances to SMEs, just pay for small it small and medium yes yeah, small and mm-hmm. medium sized enterprises who maybe don't have the, the funding to just pay for these labels because obviously what you're paying for essentially is those organizations coming in and auditing whether you truly do what you what you say you do but again lots of startups might just not have that money, so I think there is a lot, and again, that's a lot of the work that we do is looking at um, other types of consumer information platforms and helping, trying to help businesses to optimize them in terms of what information is presented and how it is presented. What one thing that we do here, this is a study we've just done, so I'm afraid I can't talk about the findings yet because we've not done the analysis yet. Um, but it's basically looking at so we've asked people to evaluate the price of a product. And and how much would they pay for it? How much would they think someone else would pay for it? So kind of getting a sense of what do they think is the value of this product? Then we show them a bunch of information and we ask them again. And so across people, we can show them different information and keep asking them afterwards, you know, do you now think it's worth more or less? And of course, the idea being that ideally what we want to get to is find a way where we can show relevant information in terms of sustainability but also show that that very same information would also increase the perceived value of the product. Because then you create that incentive for companies to say, oh, okay, so this is how we should be presenting. We don't want to do the, like you said, kind of information overload to confuse consumers. No, 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 we want to you know, inform very clearly because we know that this way of doing it would also increase the perceived value of the product. Yeah. There's also a case uh, we work now uh, with a, a digital marketing agency and they've developed uh, a, a kind of website carbon audit. So basically what they do is they can look at any website and they can tell you how much carbon that website produced over the past year based off how many people visited it and based off how much carbon is produced every time someone clicks on that website. Because of course, even though know, people don't think about digital sustainability a lot, but it is it is getting up there with, you know, air travel as a very polluting industry. Um, and but what they do is, is so they can tell you how much carbon was produced. But they then also can give you um, suggestions to optimize your website to make it you know to make it load quicker essentially because that means it produces less energy as it's loading. The nice thing about that is is websites that load quicker or generally speaking, so websites that produce less carbon are also preferred them by search engines because they're more optimized. So there's a case where you can say, look, if you make your website more environmentally friendly, it's going to, it's more likely to show up higher in Google, which is going to be good for your business. So I think that's a lot of what we're trying to do is, is find those, those ways of, of aligning different goals and ambitions. So there's kind of
0: sweet spots there of of, of self-interest for businesses, but also serving the bigger, the bigger interest. Let me come to a kind of couple of, couple of thoughts on recommendations from you that, I think it's the latest count is 149 countries that signed up to uh, net zero targets. Some were different stages. Some countries unravelling a little bit, as well we know. Um, others coming back kind of uh, on a faster timescale. I think that's 90% of world population and world GDP, flawed though that measure is. Um, so that's a, that's a lot of coverage. So uh, we're getting this kind of... Bigger targets, countries, then 8,000 businesses, cities, regions, investors saying they're signed up, have signed up to Race to zero. So that all looks good. But what you've been showing is that you get down to the the the, the details of day-to-day decisions, um, and there's a lot of kind of understanding required and a lot of handholding of businesses to help them carry on. We may not have immediate solutions, but we have ways to take a step and take another step and take another step, which if you can do it well, helps them become better businesses. That's, you know, that's the handholding bit, is it? I mean, that's, that's the sweet spot in it all.
1: I think again, one of the main reasons businesses, and I think increasingly so like to work with academics is because they know that when we produce a study it, it has a, you know, it has a seal of approval as being a proper academic, you know, piece of work, um, that's different from something that you commission, you know, to a, a, some agency who just also wants to make profit. And again, I think what lots of companies want from us is essentially case studies yeah. that, that document that what they do works and more often than not, it's so that they can take that to policymakers because I think companies and, you know, obviously net zero targets change as we have seen in the UK. And, uh, when that happens, there usually is a, is a loud response and a, a plethora of responses but I think uh, lots of businesses are very much interested in net zero as a political project because they know that if if the policymakers are behind it, they will create those frameworks within which things like circular economies can function well. Yeah. Um, and again, I think that's where we, as academics, come in to help them produce those those case studies and improve of concepts and you know frameworks that they can just show to others, especially policymakers, to say, "Look, this works. Can you now please support us?"
0: Yeah. A mm-hmm. so, uh, couple of couple of recommendations go to go straight into what in the light of what we've been talking about with circular economies and and um, uh, neuromarketing and the the complexities of this, but also the opportunities. What strike you as a couple of kind of headline recommendations that you would like to see made, perhaps in the policy space? Um, what 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 would you say, Jordan?
2: So I think legitimacy here is quite an interesting concept. So I think that in the policy space, the government need to sort of present a legitimate pathway forward. I can comment on what's happening with food waste, where we were meant to have um, things come in place where large companies were meant to re- mandatory report how much food they're wasting, uh, and the government have, have come back on that because of business pressure, because of costs, with the cost of living prices, ex- crisis, et cetera. But there has been a response from the Food industry to say, actually, you've kind of reduced the legitimacy of leading us forward towards uh, net zero, and food waste is a big contributor towards um, climate change, et cetera. So I think that maybe the first step there is sort of presenting a legitimate um, vision of how we're going to reach net zero um, perhaps you know, if you're going to announce kind of a, a policy that's going to come in, not clawing back on that because of business pressure. I know that's a difficult thing to do. Um, but et cetera, I think
1: that would probably be the first one in terms of the that kind of policy be, way yeah. forward. Again, I think it's much, much easier to create local, you know, circular economies, smaller circuits, sort of mini net zeros, if you like. And I think what I would like to see from the government is uh, a strong support for those more grassroots initiatives. And I think overall... I think a rhetoric also for consumers that is not so much about this, you know, almost what feels often as un- unobtainable, net zero in 20 whenever, right? But uh, but rather just a-, a rhetoric around supporting local businesses, local communities and, and supporting them and creating those more grassroots movements and-, and smaller circuits. Because once you have a lot of them, you're very close to actually having a circular economy. Yeah. And so
0: it's leadership by businesses, really. I mean, as you said, there are there are difficulties. Some will see greater costs, but others will see opportunities for for taking, as we were talking about earlier, that these net positive approaches, responsibility and leadership, strike me as a kind of way forward in all of this. I'd
2: say also empowerment. We've had this discussion mm-hmm. recently yep. to say that this kind of consumer information technology, if smaller you know, um, SMEs, if smaller businesses, if smaller enterprises can kind of have opportunities to use that, then not only are they going to further themselves, but they might understand kind of new ways of using the technology that we haven't thought of, that big brands haven't thought of. Um, and in the long term, that not only gives consumers more information around the product themselves to help the business, but also how it might be recycled, how it might be reused, um, etc., which again draws us back to the kind of circular economy.
1: Um, earlier. Yeah, I mean, we're working on a project at the moment, still early stages, so we don't know exactly yet what we will be doing. But the idea is something like, you know, we could just go to, let's say, Colchester Christmas market. And just look at, well, how can how could we make that one Christmas market as sustainable as possible? How to what extent can we actually, again, empower consumers there and the vendors there to create as much of a as much of a circular economy as possible? So, again, it's the idea of because if we can do that at one single Christmas market and we can show the benefits of that. Well, we can do that at all Christmas markets, and then you can do it at all markets. And then, you know, it, it, I think once you've shown that something works at a small level and that it has positive benefits, scaling it up is easier than to try to achieve something at this grand macro level mm. and trying to work out how would you scale it down and how does this not translate into individual decisions. Uh,
0: creating the, the, the positive progress and having a good story to yeah. tell with it as well. Um, marvellous. Wow. Thank you very much indeed. So Eric Jacobi, um Jordan Lazell from Essex Business School, thank you very much indeed thank for you. coming on today. Thanks a lot. Thank you. thank you. That was Louder Than Words. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. Have a look at the website for more information and do rate the pod if you can.